David will come read from us uh, for us from James 4. Please turn to James chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 4 to 10 of James chapter 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Each week we remember that even though the grass withers and the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly and Gracious Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for its infallibility. It's just uh, perfectness, Lord, that it remains truthful in a world that is so rapidly changing around us. Thank you just for that and just that you've just preserved it through the generations. And Lord, as we open this this morning, please be with Pastor and as he brings your word, uh, just uh, grant him boldness and clarity, Lord. And just work in each one of our hearts. Just give us a, a strong desire, Lord, just to learn, just to grow upon it, to be fed again from just your table, Lord, and that we may just grow, Lord, in love and adoration and just live our lives, Lord, in, in, in ways that are pleasing and honoring before you. In your name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you, David. So we're continuing on then in James 4, and the uh, title is Rooting Out Worldliness. Once again, I just kind of put part three after the, the title so we can see as we progress, trying to uh, learn from James, though it is uncomfortable in these sort of passages. Uh, we know that, uh, as the psalmist says, though the joy may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. There is this season of, of, of learning of repentance and humility before we ever can experience the joy and peace of God. And this is also an ongoing process in the life of the believer. We know that when a patient comes into the doctor's office, that the first steps must be to diagnose the problem. And that is one challenge that, of course, exists within any medical problem to really figure out what uh, is causing the symptoms. You may have symptoms, but they have to do the work of trying to understand where those symptoms are coming from. And if they're able to identify the problem, then the other side of that is that they would need to apply a proper cure to fix the problem. And sometimes things can be very easily cured, and uh, there are cures readily available. Um, other times you may be told that while there is no present cure, 
and uh, that you will have to learn to live with the ailment. And of course, that is very disheartening and discouraging um, in a physical sense. But as followers of Christ, we must understand that for each sin that ensnares us, that begins to produce bad fruit in our life, that there is a sure remedy in Christ. And this is good news. Though the cure may be uncomfortable, we we understand and affirm that in Christ, every problem of sin that tries to ensnare us and to, to wedge itself into our heart and soul, there is a sure remedy in Christ. And James has in many ways been working and we've been trying to understand this problem that is described as worldliness. This, this sin that can become so ingrained into our hearts that we lose sight of, of the gospel of God. We, we forget that we're called to be first citizens of his kingdom and to seek his kingdom first. And, and so there's this problem of, of what we may call worldliness in the heart. And James likens it to adultery, that we begin to give our first love, which belongs to God alone, to the things of this world. Uh, I keep thinking of John Owen's description of worldliness, a living affection for dying things. And that is such an accurate picture of what happens when we allow our love and devotion that belongs primarily to God to be given to the things of this world. It is a living affection for dying things. Instead, our affection should be fixed upon Christ, upon the Lord who lives forevermore and who alone can truly satisfy. So that's the problem. That's the the, the sickness or the disease that that James is addressing um, in the early church. And so then what is the cure? What is the solution that James presents us to deal with this problem? And we first of all see that the solution is rooted in the attributes of God. Specifically, it's rooted in the grace of God. And he says in verse 6, after having spent much time to describe this problem of worldliness, this problem of spiritual adultery, he says, but he gives more grace Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so the basis of the cure is the grace of God, the goodness of God, his mercy and kindness to us. This glorious news to the sinner who has been convicted of his error and who desires change. The solution is found because God is gracious. He's ready to forgive those who come before him and humble themselves. He's ready to give strength and to lift up the weary heart and the burdened soul. He is like the father looking to the horizon for the wayward son to return from his filth and destructive living. And he is ready to embrace him and to put the family robe and the ring upon his finger and to celebrate. Uh, God is a gracious, merciful father ready to receive all who will come to him in humility. And that grace of God that has come to us because of the work of Christ on our behalf is the basis of our cure. That is the hope that we have in dealing with this problem of worldliness in our hearts. We do not look internally as though help can be found from somewhere within us, But rather, we must turn our eyes to the cross where the grace of God flows down to all who will be humble and and admit their sin and their need of Christ 
and his mercy, which he purchased for us at the cross. And there God will be both the just and the justifier of all who hope in him. Just as Israel of old was plagued with the poisonous serpents, you remember, because of their sin, God had sent these fiery serpents upon them. And they would die as a result of the poisonous bite, except for that God told Moses to to raise up a bronze serpent and that they must acknowledge not only the bite of the serpent and the poison that has begun to work its way into their veins, but they must trust the word of God and look upon the, the bronze serpent and be healed. And what is so shocking about even that account is that many refuse to even look upon the means of their salvation and died as a result. But for those who look and who trust, who humble themselves to submit to the word of God, they are healed. And so that is the basis, the grace of God for our cure. And the first step in our cure that James gives us is to humbly submit ourselves to God. If we are going to be cured of this sickness, then we must be willing by the grace of God to humble ourselves before him. And in verse 7, he commands us to submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Because we know God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, this is true of God throughout all of the scriptures, then we are called to humble ourselves before him and to submit ourselves to the Lord God. And this is really the beginning of the cure. Um, not only in regards to the sinner's initial coming to faith in Christ, but as we are continually being sanctified by the grace of God, there is an ongoing need of humility and brokenness and repentance before the Lord as we are sanctified. This means that we confess our sin for what it is and as God defines it. We willingly come under the authority of God's word and we allow it to convict us and to expose us. And we define the world in which we live. We define right and wrong based upon what we find written in God's word. That is how we submit ourselves to God, how we humble ourselves to God. We come under his word and as God calls something wrong and sinful, we confess it. We agree with what we find in his word And we bring ourselves in a place of humility. This is what Jesus described as being poor in spirit um, in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And and no doubt Jesus intentionally began the, 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 the Beatitudes with being poor in spirit. One of the primary marks of the true citizen of of the kingdom of heaven is this poverty of spirit. This acknowledgement before God that I am needy, I am guilty, apart from him I can do no good. And this place of humility is absolutely essential if we are going to receive the cure for this problem of worldliness. We know Jesus himself never had to repent of sin, and yet even still his prayers were marked with tears, and his posture was one of humility before the Father. Listen to Hebrews 5, how it describes um, the, the earthly prayer life of Jesus. 
In the days of his flesh, we read Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Christ himself coming before the Father in a posture of humility and submission and even with tears and cries, crying out to the Father to to accomplish his will through the Son. No doubt Jesus looking out at the, the, the sins around him, the brokenness that has resulted of sin, many times weeping for the people of God and even their lack of repentance. Or like the leprous man who had to first admit that he was diseased in his flesh and that he could not make himself clean. He then comes to Christ, coming after having come to terms with his true condition, with his true inability to cure himself, the leper would come to Christ and throw himself upon the mercy of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the leper has only um, to, to throw himself before Christ and to trust in his ability to cure him and to make him clean. And this is why James says God gives grace to the humble, to those who will bring their heart and soul under submission to God's word and, and dis, uh, disown any ability in themselves to, to cure the problem that they find but to call out to God to be the one who makes them clean. Jesus, time and time again, would, would deal kindly with the sick. He would open the eyes of the blind. He would raise up the lame and have them leaping for joy. But even more profound than the physical miracles of Jesus is the forgiving of the sins of the tax collector who was dishonest, of the prostitute who was... Uh, engaged in immorality and, 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 and um, ungodly living to, to pronounce that her sins are forgiven because she had placed her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or the proud Pharisee who had prized himself in his ability to keep God's law, but then coming to Christ, realizing he needs from Christ, that he, he needs uh, a Savior, then Jesus humbly, uh, willingly forgives those who humble themselves. Essentially, James is describing repentance. To come before the Lord and repent of sin. And probably one of the best concise definitions of repentance uh, from uh, Thomas Watson's little book. I have no referenced it before and uh, kind of Used it. Uh, we'll, we'll use it a little bit as an outline for this morning too. But uh, he defined repentance as a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and outwardly reformed. It's a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and outwardly reformed. And that is so important to understand. We're not just talking about a change of behavior. That actually is the final step in the process of repentance. That is the the, the fruit of the result of having changed the root of the tree itself. 
in repentance by the grace of God. So there first must be this inward humility, this poverty of spirit, this brokenness as we stand before a a holy God and we realize our sin, we realize our need, we throw ourselves upon him. And as his spirit through the gospel, brings about transformation in our heart and souls, and we, we receive the grace from Christ, then our outward actions are reformed. They are moved to align with the scriptures. And actually, in his uh, little book on repentance, he said that repentance is a spiritual medicine made up of six special ingredients. And I just wanted to give you those six items. Um, I, I did get a couple of these books as well and uh, will get put into the library. There's, it's actually just a fairly small book, but I've just found it so very helpful as we try to understand what is biblical repentance? What does it really mean to, to humble oneself before God? What, what is involved? We know it's not just an external thing. It's an internal reality first, but what is involved in it? And, and I think these six ingredients that he gives uh, are very helpful. And first of all, he says, there must be the sight of sin. And I think that's what James, in many ways, is working to expose. He is helping the, the, the believer to understand what is acceptable and what is sinful. And he has gone through various things from the, the use of our tongue to the attitudes of our heart to, to our love for the things of this world. These things are sinful. And before we can truly begin a biblical form of repentance, we must see our sin. He would say before a man can come to Christ, he must first come to himself. If we do not see ourself rightly, then we cannot come to Christ rightly. We must first understand who we are in light of God's word. And then from that position of need, we can come to Christ as the savior of our soul. And so first there must be a sight of sin. And James uh, compares the word of God to that mirror that we have we've seen that as we look into this perfect word it acts as a mirror to our souls and we can begin to see who we are rightly this is why it's so important that we are consistently in the word because we need to continually be reminded of who we are and who uh, Christ is so first of all the sight of sin secondly sorrow for sin And this, in many ways, is what James is describing as well. Sorrow for sin, this poverty of spirit, um, what many of the old preachers would call the embittering of the soul. We see even when Peter preached at Pentecost, you remember, he's preaching to to the Israelites who had gathered um, for the feast. And as they listened to his words and, and, and he calls them to repent, having even crucified Christ, we're told in the scriptures that they are cut to the heart, they begin to realize what their sin is before a holy God. And there is a sense of sorrow that comes into their heart and soul. This spirit wrought conviction that what I have done is wrong and I am sorry for it. Not just sorry that I'm caught. We certainly see that, don't we? It's easy to spot in our children. Maybe not quite as easy to spot in our own hearts and minds. 
but if you catch your child doing something that he was just told not to do, you know, don't hit the cat, and then you turn around, and there he is hitting the poor cat once again, and there's a sense of sorrow that comes over him, but it's sorrow that he was caught doing it, because then a few moments later, he'll be doing the same thing again. Uh, That's not the biblical picture of sorrow, but understanding that your offense is against God, even as David would pray, against you alone have I sinned. There must be this brokenness that comes over the soul as we consider what an offense sin is to God. We know that the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart, Psalm 51, 17. We see all kinds of examples of an ungodly sorrow. We know even Judas, who betrayed the Lord, was sorrowful after, but it was not unto true repentance or true life, but was more of a self-loathing because it ended in him taking his own life instead of fleeing, as Peter did, to Christ for forgiveness. We look in the Old Testament, men like Pharaoh, who for a time seemed troubled at the plagues of God that had come upon him because of his disobedience. But as soon as the plague was lifted, as soon as the frogs were gone or the darkness had lifted, then he was right back to refusing to submit. You see, his sorrow was not a true sorrow before God. But that must be a mark of true biblical repentance. And James is describing this In very graphic terms, as we look further down in the passage, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I don't believe James is saying that as Christians, we must always be mourning, we must always be gloomy, we must never laugh. Certainly there are times for laughter and great joy, but there also are seasons of brokenness before God. And especially as we consider this call to repent and believe upon Christ, there must be within the soul a sense of true sorrow for what they have done. Sometimes this may result in physical tears, sometimes not. It's, it's not, again, the, the, the outward things that are, that are primary, but this conviction and sorrow of the heart and soul before God. So secondly was confession. Thirdly is, uh, sorry, secondly was a sorrow for sin. Thirdly, the third ingredient of repentance that he listed is confession of sin. Confession of sin that he says we, when we come before God, we must accuse ourselves The truth is that by this self-accusing, we prevent Satan's accusing. In our confessions, we accuse ourselves of pride, infidelity, passion, so that when Satan, who is called the accuser of the brethren, shall lay these things to our charge, God will say, they have accused themselves already. Therefore, Satan, you have no suit. Your accusations have come too late. Confession in many ways is the self-accusation that I have sinned before God. Acknowledging that as we have seen. 
to define sin as God has, not to justify it or try to, you know, explain it away. Well, in, in my situation, you see, I'm angry because, well, my, my children are so very difficult and, and they're so disobedient. And so it's really their fault. Instead of coming before God and saying, Lord, uh, I see within me the, the, this, this propensity to anger. Forgive me. I acknowledge that it's wrong. Or maybe it's the, the lust of the flesh. And you see, well, it's not my fault that I, that I deal with lust. That we live in this culture that is so inundated with, with immorality. And everywhere I go, there are images of, 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 of inappropriately dressed women or whatever it might be. And so you see, it's not my fault that I, that I have this sin within my heart. No, we, we accuse ourselves before God. And, and I love the imagery of, of the accuser of the brethren coming before the throne of, of, of God and, and, and bringing up our sins to God and, and God saying, well, actually, they've already accused themselves and have been forgiven by the blood of Christ. You see, the promise of forgiveness and of being cleansed is for those who confess to God. We see in 1 John 1, 9, those who confess their sins. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There is this need within the Christian and also the unbeliever to come to a place of confession. And that is an ingredient of true repentance. Fourthly, there must be a shame for sin. A shame for sin. And it's no secret that we live in a culture that sees shame as an evil thing. Something that we have advanced beyond and something that that we must never consider again to, to feel shame within our own minds and hearts. In fact, we pride ourselves in many ways as a culture as being shameless. That, that, that more and more people are pushing the boundaries of doing things that, that even a few generations ago they would have been appalled at the very idea of doing these things. And yet our culture seems to pride themselves in what well, we have no shame. Nothing, nothing makes us feel shame. But for the Christian, there is a blessingness uh, that comes through shame. Again, not that we're called to stay in a constant state of shame, but for a season. And I would say uh, periodically throughout the Christian's life, as we do give ourselves over to, to the idols around us or to the own lusts of our flesh, there should be the conviction of the Holy Spirit that, that comes upon us and we feel a sense of shame for what we have done. The weightiness of our rebellion against God. And, and we feel that and we loathe it. We despise it. Like we sing in the hymn, How Deep the Father's Love. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. When you understand that, that your sin, even prior to your conversion, but even now as, as a believer, when we sin before God, then it is as though we are standing in the crowd that called out, crucify him. It is as though the, the, the whip that came down upon Christ was at our hand because it was for our sins that he died. It was our sins, even as the hymn writer writes, that held him there. And do we feel a sense of shame in that when we consider it? As though we ourselves were hurling insults upon Christ, that we ourselves were spitting upon the perfect Lamb of God when we give ourselves over to the, for, to the very things for which he died. Like Peter, who wept bitterly after he denied Christ, 
so is the believer who understands he has belittled the Savior in his sin. Fifthly, there must be a hatred for sin. Not only a shame for sin, but a hatred for sin. And I suppose we've all at different times maybe um, eaten something that had made you sick. Maybe you went to a restaurant and uh, you ordered some food. And as a result, you got food poisoning. I've never had food poisoning that I know of. uh, But it sounds like a very miserable experience. And and people I've talked to that have had it from one thing or another uh, usually are not likely to, to return to that particular restaurant maybe ever again, or that particular food that, that had made them sick, that, that forever that food seems tainted, doesn't it? Maybe sometimes you, you eat a meal and then you get a stomach bug, and, uh, and, and if you're sick after eating something, then, then it's really difficult, at least for a long time, to ever enjoy that again, because now it's associated with that sickness, with the, the terrible discomfort that it caused you, and so you don't want to return back to it. One of the, when I was working for Reynolds, one of the uh, frustrating things was sometimes working in a fast food place and you're actually working in the kitchen. Uh, and they had these big things on the floor called grease traps where the, the grease from the sink is supposed to collect and, and then they can you know, keep it from going down the drain. And sometimes we'd have to go in and, 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 and open this thing up and then try to clean it. And I mean, I couldn't eat a teen burger for like two months after working on that thing. It was so disgusting. The worst smell that I've ever experienced in my life, far worse than anything on the farm, uh, was inside of that grease trap. And, and for a long time, even now, it's kind of like, oh, I don't know. Maybe I'll just have a salad or something. Um, you see, when we, when we experience discomfort, then we want to stay away from it. And, and so it is for the Christian When you begin to feel the weight of sin, when we begin to consider that it was my sin that that held him there, that crucified the the, the Lord of glory, then, then, then what used to be delightful to you, what used to be appetizing, now it it makes you sick. Now I I have actually this hatred for what I once loved because I I see it for what it is. I I, I realize what what it did to my Savior and Lord. How can I return back to the very thing from which he has delivered me? There is this holy hatred. Though we wrestle with it, even as Paul would describe that, that at times I, I do what I don't want to do and the things that I know I, I should be doing and I desire to do, well, I, I don't do those things. And there's this battle that, that goes on between the flesh and the Spirit of God within us. But as the Spirit of God continues to work within us, there is this growing hatred for our own sin. And as we consider the sin around us, you know, we always talk about, oh, well, we are to, 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 to love the, the sinner and hate the sin. Then as R.C. Sproul said, well, that, that, that sounds nice, but it's not the sins that are sent to hell. It's the sinners who are sent to hell. You see, when we understand as God looks upon a rebellious people, there is a holy hatred within God towards not only the sins, but the sinners who refuse to repent. And yes, God is also benevolent to mankind, and we see acts of his love as well, even in his patience and in the the opportunity for man to repent and the going out of the gospel, the sun rises and sets and the rain falls on the just and the unjust, so certainly God displays his love. But there's also this sense of holy hatred against the sin 
for which Christ has died. And we ought to hate that sin, most of all within ourselves. Thomas Watson said, Christ is never loved until sin is loathed. Heaven is never longed for until sin is loathed. And so there must be within true repentance this hatred of sin. And I think that's exactly why James is calling for such what seems to be extreme actions. The, the cleansing of your hands, the purifying of your heart, the, the, this wretchedness and mourning and weeping and, and the gloom. Because for this season, we are gripped by a hatred of sin, the shame of it, the emptiness of it. And it's actually a wonderful thing because, as he says in verse 10, those who humble yourself, humble yourself for the Lord and he will exalt you. God does not leave us in a place of shame and brokenness and sorrow, but it is that we might experience his forgiveness, we might experience his grace and mercy, and that we might turn from the, 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 the very disease and sickness of sin, and we might turn and, and live. God takes no delight, he says, in the death of the wicked. God is is, is the emphasis of God through Scripture is He is a saving God. He is a merciful God. He is a compassionate God. It is because of the hardness of man's heart that they will not turn and be healed. And that is the final ingredient that He gives after hatred for sin, number six, is a turning from sin, where we actually stop sinning. We, we actually turn and, and give ourselves to the, 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 the things that please the Lord, that are in accordance with his scripture. Paul would compare it to an instrument in Romans 6, where once our, our life was like an instrument that the, the devil used to play his songs upon. Now this instrument is offered to God for righteousness that the songs of God may sound from our lives, that that God's praise would be heard from us. No longer the works of wickedness that the devil once played, but now we are offering ourselves to God and for the righteous deeds that glorify him. That is the change, the turn, as the final step of repentance. And we see this many times in the scriptures. Uh, think, for example, of even the, the little man. Does anyone remember who the, maybe the kids remember the, the little man who climbed up the tree so that he could see Christ? Does anyone remember his name? There was a song about him. What was it? Someone said it, I thought. Who was the wee man that couldn't see over the crowd, so he climbed up and wanted to behold Christ? Zacchaeus, thank you. <laughs> Zacchaeus, exactly. And what happened as Zacchaeus looks upon the Savior and Jesus approaches him and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming over to your house. I'm going to fellowship with you to the horror of the Pharisees. And as Jesus is there and the Spirit of God is working in this man's life and he is convicted for his sin, his dishonesty, that he had cheated people. And, and, and as a result, Zacchaeus not only believes upon Christ, but he says, I will in turn give back 
uh, I think, is it sevenfold to those? Four? Four times. Thanks, David. <laughs> I always think seven because the number of perfection. But in four times that he will give back to those he'd wronged. Well, that is a picture of turning from sin. There is this repentance. There is a believing upon Christ, a confessing. And then there is, you know what? What I used to do, the, the cheating in, in taxes, the dishonesty, I'm stopping that. I'm actually going to counter it with, with this abundant gift back to these people. And that is the outward reformation of the Christian's life. And there must be that final step of outward reform, of of true evidence that repentance has taken place. This is why John would say that if we we say we are in the light but walk in darkness, we're, we're deceiving ourselves. This must be the final expression, the fruit of true repentance, that our lives begin to change. Not all at once, not as fast as we would like them to, but there is a progression. And there is a a steady growing in obedience to the things of God. And what's incredible is you consider this work of repentance in the life of the believer, this work of humbling ourselves before God, is that much of what we've seen is, as the ingredients of repentance, as he describes it so well, actually much of it is within the heart and soul of the Christian. It's only the final evidences of our external change of life that, that we actually see. And, and sadly, many within the Christian community want to focus all of our energy and time about changing the externals. We just need to, to do right things. We just need to, to clean up our life and, and, and kind of you know, make, a, make a, a checklist of things I need to stop doing and then just stop doing that. I need to, to be less angry. I need to stop drinking. I need to stop looking at pornography. I need to stop gossiping. I need to stop engaging in gluttony uh, or, or all, all of these outward things that we know are wrong. And those are all things and changes that, that should happen. But when you understand the real work begins within the very heart and soul of the believer, as we come before God, we come before his word, and we plead with him in prayer that he would break us, he would grant to us deeper levels of repentance, he would give to us this, this newness of heart that would then affect the uh, externals of our life. That's where the real battle is, the real work James used previously the imagery of the salty spring and the pure spring. You see, the the, the salty spring that is coming up out of the ground is the result of what's down below. And so as the people of God, what we need is this deep inward workings of the Spirit where we are convicted and where there is true brokenness and repentance before God and, and a clinging to Christ that results in the flowing out of life-giving water. Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and outwardly reformed. And as we think about James's call to humble ourselves before God and even the promise that as we do that, that, that we will be exalted by the Lord 
um, brought into his very presence, granted these new bodies that are no longer riddled with sin, and we are able to stand forever in the presence of our Savior, that this comes to those who first humble themselves in true repentance and go on in repentance. And those six ingredients, the sight of sin, the sorrow for sin, the confession of sin, the shame of sin, hatred of sin, and finally, the turning of sin. This is our first cure. And you may remember in the story of Pilgrim's Progress, um, Christian, in the beginning of, of the book by John Bunyan, he was reading the Bible. And as, as Pilgrim, uh, or as Christian is reading the Bible, he learns of the character of God. He learns of his own guilt. He learns of coming judgment upon the world. And, and this burden begins to, to grow upon his back. And as he continues to read and meditate upon these things, the weight becomes more and more profound to the point where he feels like it is going to carry him down to hell. And he wanders into the slough of despond, and there this weight upon his back almost drowns him. Until finally, as Christian continues on where the evangelist pointed him, he comes to the cross. And at the cross, the burden is cut free from his back. The weight of his shame, the weight of his guilt is, is relieved from him and it's, it rolls away. And you think of the, the hymn uh, that we sing at the cross. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight and now I am happy all the day. No doubt uh, as that hymn was written probably had that scene in mind of the burden of the heart rolling away at the foot of the cross. So I don't want us to shy away from the weight of what James is saying and even feeling it, feeling a sense of shame within our hearts, of conviction, of brokenness at times, but we cannot live in that place either. We don't want to carry this burden around forever until it grows to the point where we're driven into the ground. You must come to the cross again and again and be reminded again and again of what Christ has done, that his perfect life was pleasing to the Lord, his righteousness was without sin, that, that he came under the law and he, he stood up under the full weight of God's law and never stumbled. And then not only upon the weight of the law, but then all of our sins and shame and guilt were piled upon Christ. And he suffered and died upon the cross bearing not only the fullness of his obedience to God's law, but the weight of all of the sins of those who believe upon the Lamb. They were placed upon Christ, and there he suffered and died, enduring the full wrath of God upon him. Wrath that should have been ours, he bore it on the tree. And so we don't have to carry it. In fact, we must not carry it because we cannot bear it. We must come to Christ and allow the process of repentance to bring us to his feet, 
and there to have this burden removed because Christ has satisfied the justice of God on our behalf. And we are forgiven and we are counted free and we must then go on in our love for God and love of neighbor, walking in obedience to his word. As the psalmist says in Psalm 30, verse 4, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And we will close there this morning. And uh, as we prepare to partake of the Lord's table, we have opportunity to also have a physical reminder of what Christ has done for us and the hope that we have of being reconciled to God in Christ. Let us pray, and then we will prepare for the Lord's table together. Father in heaven, we come to you now and thank you for, Lord, just the the purity of your word, God, that it is, uh, Lord, we know that it is right, though it it convicts us and points out our, our need God, we know that it is through repentance, through humility, that we also find deliverance and reconciliation to you. And so we pray that your spirit would, would work in our hearts, Lord, that, that he would do that, that deep work within our souls of helping us to see our need. And Lord, that as soon as we ever even entertain the idea of, of sinning against you, of disobeying, Lord, that there would be such an awareness of, of the, the horror of sin, of, of what it cost, Lord, that we would flee away and continue to stand firm upon your grace. Help us, God, I pray, to be set apart from this world as we live in it and interact with uh, unbelievers and, and those who rejoice in the very things that, that we are uh, repenting of, God, that you help us to know how to stand firm with love and grace and patience, uh, reaching out with the gospel of hope. We thank you for the Lord's table, for this ongoing reminder of Christ's sustaining um, presence with us, Lord, of his perfect sacrifice that has satisfied your wrath and has, Lord, um, redeemed us from the, the coming judgment. And so I pray that is a blessing to your people as we partake together. And this I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll invite you to stand as we prepare to take the Lord's table together. And uh, so go ahead and turn to Corinthians here. God in his mercy has given us this ongoing covenant sign in the new covenant. First baptism that shows us what happens when a sinner is brought from death to life. They are buried with Christ, crucified to the old man, raised up to walk in newness of life and we're called to put this sign on as followers of Christ to to publicly uh, declare our allegiance to Christ as an affirmation of the church upon you that we affirm God's work and and his grace in your life and uh, and then this ongoing sign that God has established of the Lord's table where we remember and rejoice that his body was broken and his blood shed that we might be redeemed. 
And so if you are a baptized believer this morning in Christ, then I invite you to come and get the cup and the bread, and we will partake together. And so uh, when you are ready, um, I invite you to, to please come and get the elements. Right. I want to stand together and uh, be able to play. Thank you. First Corinthians 11, as Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and seeking to correct some misunderstandings and even abuses of the Lord's table, he writes in verse, 11, uh, verse 23 of chapter 11, 
For this I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so let us take the bread together, remembering the Lord's body broken for our deliverance. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so let us then take the cup together, remembering the Lord's blood shed for us. Praise God that his sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice and is sufficient for all time. And we rejoice in that together. So we're going to close as we reflect upon the Lord's table and his word with uh, 343 in our hymn books, the communion hymn. And so let us just meditate upon the words as we sing them and uh, offer them even as a prayer to God and a thanks to God uh, for what he has done. So 343 in your hymn books, please.
incredible line that Christ will come again and will join in the feast of heaven around the table of the king. And that is how exactly the Lord's table points us forward to his return. I'll leave you with the benediction from 2 Corinthians 13.11. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you as you go. And the promise of God's presence. Uh, just a few announcements. Clean up today, I have uh, Cout family and also the Newfeld family. Counters today, Cassandra and Sabrina. And then um, a reminder for Wednesday Bible study at 6.30. We'll plan to finish up the uh, Antichrist in his ruin uh, documentary. And, uh, and then the plan, um, Lord willing, beyond that, we've had several folks ask about maybe doing some... Uh, kind of going through the 1689 London Baptist Confession. And so, Lord willing, um, we will kind of start, not sure exactly how it's going to look as far as the format, but we'll um, begin to just kind of work our way through that um, together and uh, hopefully learn and and grow as a result. So that's kind of where we're heading into the the spring here. Uh, Anything else for announcements before we go that I missed? Announcements or things to be aware of? I did send out a kind of a quick update letter, so if you didn't get one, um, I could print one off for you or email you as well. So just uh, ask for that. Otherwise, it's on the um, the chat group there. So if you didn't see it, please uh, yeah let me know, and I'll make sure to get you a copy. Um, all right. Well, um, time for lunch, I guess. Everyone's getting hungry. So, um, uh, Gerlin, would you mind to voice a prayer for our meal? Thank you. Thank you.